0: Please join me in welcoming Phyllis Blackley! They say that women are like tea bags. You don't
1: know their strength until they get into hot
0: water. We need to talk about the threat of the women's liberation movement. So let me be clear. I am not against women working outside the home. That's their choice. What I am against is a small elitist group putting down homemakers. They want to create a sex neutral society, which will mean that women are going to find themselves with two full time jobs. So you need to tell your senators you want them to vote no on this equal rights amendment so we can have a country that we are proud to leave our daughters. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Mrs. America. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson
1: and I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson.
0: Uh, if you're a little confused, this is the couple weeks of overlap where we are covering both Westworld and Mrs. America. So, um if you were if you came here for Robots, uh, Stay for Fembots. I don't know. Like, come, come join us, Westworld fans, as we discuss, uh, this great FX on Hulu show. Today we will be talking about episode five. Um, which is titled let me get the order right phyllis and fred and brenda and mark um and so we will be discussing that episode this week on the podcast we also have a very special guest our token male guest of the season john slattery is here to talk about uh fred schlafly so that is what we are up to today if you are just joining us for the first time ever what still watching uh does is every week Richard and I pick a show well we co- we commit for a season of a show that we are sort of watching and obsessing over we break it down episode by episode so right now here we are it's Mrs America Westworld season <laughs> and uh and and we're here to discuss all that uh Richard before we get into like the the meat of the episode I just want like your your broader takes is it, how does this episode stack up to the first four in in your view
1: I like it. I think it had a certain, um, it, uh, the the narrative structure I thought was really good. And I think that it thematically the two kind of storylines, I mean, I guess Steinem was in there too, but like they, they really linked up together well. And then I think they kind of added, um, kind of temporal benefit that in 1974, in March of 1974, um, free to be you and me was airing uh, as a TV special. Mm -hmm. Um, and that just added such a nice kind of, wistful, ironic button to the episode. So yeah, I thought it it felt this episode felt to me in its craft the most like, like an episode of Mad Men, which yes. I mean is a compliment.
0: Yeah. That, that ability to um, fold in a pop cultural event and make the themes of it so resonant with the personal story that's being told, right? Like...
1: Yeah, and it didn't feel forced. It felt like everything you know, comparing... Uh, Brenda's uh, marital issues with Phyllis is like it all felt um, of a piece so I I like that that the through line was really clear in this episode
0: Um, I completely agree Um, all right so I also wanted to um, let you all know that if you wanted to email us stillwashingpot at gmail.com we would love to um, hear your thoughts Uh, we've gotten a couple emails so far this one comes from uh, Jim And, uh, Jim writes in to say, I know it's difficult for stories to be told that are multi-layered while effectively addressing intersectionality and the micro level aspects of public policy without getting into the weeds. This could only be done on a long form episodic style. I'm frustrated, however, that the hateful monster Schlafly, whom I remember as a true enemy, is shown triumphantly building her coalition, racist and sexist as it was, while a feminist movement is displayed with all their conflicts. But then I guess that's what makes good drama. I just hope that the direction, uh, shows how effectively diverse feminist ideals have become embedded into our greater society. Excellent podcast, um, et cetera, et cetera. So thank you, Jim. Um, I think, you know, that's, that's something that we will continue to discuss. I think that's been the main sort of, uh, question around this series of like, is Mrs. America too, I don't know, kind to Phyllis Lafley or, um, you know, Elevating to her or that sort of stuff. And, and I think, you know, having seen the arc of the whole show, I, I don't think that that's going to be something that people will reasonably be able to argue by the end. But I also just think even now, um, you know, this is not a particularly victorious episode for her. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I think showing her struggles doesn't make me Understanding where her where a lot of her stuff comes from doesn't make me like her anymore. What do you think, Richard?
1: Well, I think it grants her the humanity to make decisions. It's just that she makes all the wrong ones. You know? Right. Um, I think, I don't doubt that Phyllis Schlafly had a mix of disgust and compassion for her son, who she recognized as being gay, Um. And I think we can, you know, that is a relatable human moment as she's struggling to navigate that. But in the end, her, the worst of her politics wins out, and she gives him this hideous speech about not being gay, being akin to quitting smoking. Right. Um, so I think that we're getting a full psychological portrait of her, um, but it's not letting her off the hook for anything, um, you know. And I think that is a risk um, anytime we, you know, tr- attempt to take a more in depth look at. A sort of noted villain um are we then just by showing um you know their sort of interior life are we somehow condoning it or complicit in it you know the spread of that idea that ideology i don't think so um in this show's case i think blanchett and the writers and the directors know what they're doing um and i think this episode really um in its emotional clarity really shows you that like she wasn't just an abject you know evil entity and that's what makes her more scary and more frustrating is that she was a person who had these kind of wishes and regrets and all these things and every step of the way basically subverted sublimated all of that just to kind of win on a on purity points i guess
0: yeah and i think um the humanistic portrait of a figure like that um i don't know i think about this in terms of um what happened after the 2016 election and how much harder it became for me to um how mu- even harder it it became for me to relate to like republicans i know <laughs> Because if they voted for Trump, I'm just sort of like, I don't know how to communicate with you, a Trump voter. And so then for a while, I just sort of like boxed everyone I knew who voted for Trump, like into a sort of like, unreasonable, probably not worth my time sort of uh, column, which is not something I'm comfortable with. And I think you know, just boxing someone off is Phyllis Schlafly a monster in many ways. Yes, absolutely. Maybe in, in almost every way, but I really love, um, what you said right at the jump there, Richard, which is just that it like, you know, it it affords her this, this depiction of her affords her, um, the humanity to make decisions. Right. And I, I think, Trying to understand that, not sympathize with or, or agree with in any way, but trying to understand that is, I think, worth doing. Understanding the origin of something is a good way to figure out how to fight it, right? Or, um, you know, anyway, that's, that's, that's my take on it. I, I understand that it's still sort of like a, a rough spot for some people. And I, I'll be very curious to see how people react to this particular episode, uh, which, you know, as I said, cannot be really, considered a, a victory for Phyllis. Um, though she does I, I decide to go to law school. So there's that. Um, all right. So let's run down really quickly the the new characters we meet in this episode before we sort of get into all of it. Um, so we had already met uh, Brenda Feigen Fausto, um, played by Aria Grainer. She had been in some uh, earlier episodes, but this is sort of, you know, spotlight has moved on her and then uh we get uh her husband uh mark feigen fausto um how do you feel about adam brody's uh 70s hair in this episode richard
1: i feel good about adam brody's everything yeah um <laughs> you know i am i feel like some new unknown piece of the puzzle just snapped into place now that adam brody and Kate Blanchett have been on screen together like it feels <laughs> like two cultural interests finally united um <laughs> Yeah. And I didn't know that he was going to be in this. So that was kind of a a pleasant surprise.
0: Um, so there's that couple. And then, you know, Frank Thomas, uh, is, is the name of the, the man who Gloria is dating for most of this episode. He had been in earlier episodes as well. He's played by Insecure's Jay Ellis. Um, this is a real life figure that, uh, Gloria called, you know, as late as I think it was like 2015 called like the love of her life, her best friend sort of stuff. Um, but also in this episode, um, Gloria meets, uh, Stan Pottinger, played by Jake Lacey, America's boyfriend, Jake Lacey. Um, and she, Gloria Steinem wound up dating that guy for eight or nine years, I think into the eighties. So this is like an inter, a crossroads of two relationships, uh, major relationships in Gloria Steinem's life. Um, so yeah, I think this is the most um men in any episode mm-hmm. of uh of Mrs. America Mark Feigen Fausto is a really interesting figure because you know th- this episode uh, you know we, we hear about the book that he's writing the mail machine we hear about you know the men's liberation sort of stuff but um you know she at the time, right now, I don't think we think that much about people double bearing, barreling their names, but they met at Harvard Law School. She married him. She hyphenated her name, and then he hyphenated his name.
1: Yeah, it just made me think um, growing up in Boston, uh, there was one neighborhood in particular, Jamaica Plain, uh, that was um, a largely Latino neighborhood on one side, but also on another side, um, a lot of kind of ex hip or current hippies who moved there in the seventies and early eighties. And, um, all their kids were, you know, about my age. And I went to school with a lot of them and almost to a person, they all had hyphenated last names, um, you know, uh, and, and, and as their parents did, you know, um, so it was very, um, uh, in vogue, I guess at the time.
0: Yeah. It's just funny. Like I, I grew up, you know, in Northern California, my mom kept her maiden name. It was her second marriage. She kept her maiden name, uh, Williams and uh, still has it right and everyone just thought it was I just remember everyone thinking it was so strange that you know my mom's last name wasn't my last name and were my parents divorced and all stuff like that I'm like no they're still married she just kept her name Uh, so uh, you know I I guess uh, where I was growing up, which I thought was like super liberal and progressive, like was still catching up, uh, to what was going on. Um, but we used to joke because, you know, my last name's Robinson. We used to joke that my mom didn't want to be Mrs. Robinson because of the Simon and Garfunkel song, but I don't think that's. Um, so anyway, so, so Brenda Feigenfalso, um, is a really interesting figure. You know, she's like a co-founder of Ms. Magazine. Um, there's a really brief mention in here when, uh, Fred Schlafly is sort of, uh, dismissing her as, um, you know, a nobody. And, and Phyllis says, well, no, she wrote this, this amicus brief. Um, and the amicus brief was for a case. Um, let me look it up. I have it right here. uh, it's frontiero versus Richardson, nineteen seventy three case um and that established uh, that people in the military uh, that the military could not discriminate uh, benefits based on gender uh, in the military and uh what's true of Brenda feigen Fausto is she had a really close relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg like they were they were good friends and worked on things together and stuff like that. So, um if you saw the documentary um RBG, uh Brenda was interviewed for that, so you would see her there. Um but yeah, I mean, so this is like this is a really interesting you know, I mentioned earlier that Dobby Waller had said that, you know, this s- season of television was sort of about the times in which the, uh, schlafly movement and the, and the feminist movement, uh, the places in which they sort of like intersect and overlapped. And so here we have another one, which is the Feigen Faustos, uh, debating the Schlafleys uh, on Tom Snyder's, uh, show. Um, this actually happened in 1974. So, um, this idea of, I just think it's, it's such an interesting opportunity for the, um, the exploration of, who they represent like bella sort of opportunistically thinks of them as this like golden attractive couple who can sort of put one kind of face on the feminist movement and um and then the truth uh, that this episode posits uh, that lies beneath well yeah i mean this
1: episode is really adept at showing the compromise positions that both women are brenda and phyllis are in you know um, Phyllis is, is in that position more kind of of her own making in a way. Um, but both of them are subject to v- different versions or different degrees of a certain kind of expectation, um, that, you know, can be imposed on them, not just, you know, by themselves or by their immediate people, but like, you know, in, 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 in various ways, uh, that, Feel kind of contrary to the way they've organized their lives, you know? Um, so I thought that was an interesting parallel to see that, um, in, in both storylines, let, let's just say, for example, um, that Phyllis, you know, with her son realizing that he's gay and Brenda maybe realizing that she at least has, at least this version of Brenda has some version of, you know, same sex attraction that she wants to act on. Um, both of those in their own weird ways run sort of completely counter to, uh, the, what they've created themselves in terms of branding and identity, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so it shows that, like, one kind of irreg- irregularity, if you want to call it that, can disrupt an entire um, self-conception or ideology, um, which just goes further to show that um, the best way forward through all this is, a sur- I mean, not on Phyllis's side, obviously, she would disagree, but, like, on Brenda's side of things, is that sort of more that broader intersectionality and to open it up to um, as many, you know, kind of ally and compassionate voices as you can and experiences because um, there's no accounting for all of the variants that might exist, you know. Um, So I I like that kind of internal struggle, if you want to call it a struggle, um, kind of standing in for a bigger thing about the size and shape of the feminist movement's tent, I guess.
0: Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting because, um, the, we talked before about sort of the Gloria versus Betty dynamic of last week and this sort of like what the feminist movement looks like or is allowed to look like and the, and the, what Gloria Steinem represented by being sort of beautiful and glamorous in terms of making sure that the feminists were not written off as just, you know, uh, disgruntled, unattractive uh women. And um I was reading up on some like uh, Brendan Feigen Fausto uh, articles that came out at the time. And there's this, can I just like, can I read you one of my favorite uh lead paragraphs of all time of a profile of a red, um, yeah, this uh this journalist is named Philip uh no, Beale, and this profile of Brenda this interview with Brenda was sort of syndicated in a bunch of different paper papers but um the first paragraph goes if i were an in- if i were an incorrigible male chauvinist if i were I would describe Brenda Fagan Fausto as a gorgeous and leggy blonde lawyer, although she fits the F said description quite nicely. Ray's consciousness forbids my making any big deal out of her appearance. There are more pressing matters like the lowly station of women in the eyes of the law. So, um, that's a, just a really neat writing trick of like, I mean, I, I, I'm not I, going
1: I, to say this, but I would say I, this. But. Yeah
0: you know if i were, if i were a knuckle dragger i would say this but i wouldn't anyway so well, that's it's, it's very like yeah. people
1: are saying yeah. i'm not saying it but people are saying
0: <laughs> my friends say um yeah so that's um you know brenda in her own way and in, in a much lower profile way than gloria was you know sort of one of these like you know attractive married sort of uh faces of the movement and um there's this part right at the end, right, where Gloria is talking to, um, to Brenda, you know, over, over dishes or whatever about like, you know, like, do you think you are gay? Like, should we, you know, do we want to talk about it? Like, what's going on? And, um, this version of Brenda has this quick line about like, where's Kate Millett now? Um, and Kate Millett was this, um, Member of, of the feminist movement, second wave feminist movement, who came out as lesbian slash bisexual and was sort of, um, like she said she was lesbian, then she clarified that she was bisexual. She was married to a man, whatever. But in any case, she, she said that in, I think it was like 1970 or 1971. And it put like, it put the brakes on her prominence. And so I, that reference is meant to say like, uh, if I come out as, as, as gay, um, I'm, I, Brenda, might lose my high profile status as a member of this movement. Um, so that was my interpretation of, of that name drop of Kate Millett there. But, um, I just, uh, I, I you know, and the way in which that dovetails with Margaret leaving for Oakland, because the care, this character of Margaret, uh, you know, once again, a real woman who worked at Ms. Magazine and is leaving, and, uh, you know, has this sort of exit interview with Gloria while Gloria's, uh, you know, boyfriend and his two kids are right outside the office. And Gloria says, like, oh, she's leaving because, like, the schools are better in Oakland. He's like, oh, is that why? You know, and, like, part of that is, is you know, some of the stuff we had seen Margaret go through at Miz uh, when it comes to, like, you know, black women and tokenism. But also, like, I have to imagine her queer identity as well. So, you know, that being... That being part of it.
1: Um. Well, yeah, and I think you, you see um, this debate ever, you know, ongoing. I mean, look at, you know, w- with the fight for, for let's say, gay marriage, which was kind of meant to be a stand-in for all-encompassing equality, you know, for LGBTQ uh, people. Um, and yet, a lot of time, the criticism was that the the face of the movement being put forward was very safe and very sanitized very white very affluent um and thus really left a lot of people behind or ignored um in the pursuit of something that was supposed to be good for everybody um it's an age-old debate um i appreciate that this show um handles it not as an afterthought but as an actual like part of the text of this story um you know i wish that it had the time to follow her to oakland you know yeah and to figure out what that all was about and and what she found and you know because there's a lot there that is worth unpacking but i guess you know they are limited somewhat by the constraints of time and and whatnot but um yeah i think i think they've done a really good job of not um you know just as we kind of talk about the humanization of phil they've done a really good job also not to you know make this a a hagiography about Gloria Steinem or any of the others, you know, um, they are shown as sort of flawed and yeah, self-interested people.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, so we open the episode with a, an avant-garde, um, performance. It's just like amazing, um, puppetry of the penis, uh, situation here. Um, I loved this. Did you enjoy this? (laughs)
1: Yeah, maybe think about, um, like Lysistrata, you know, the 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 Greek (laughs) comedy, um, Uh where, you know, thousands of years ago, it involved, like, people running around with big fake erections. Um, uh, you know, it it felt very, um, definitely like the theater of the moment, uh, kind of almost like agitproppy, y um, overly stylized kind of thing. Um, and it's just kind of, in its own way, though, kind of quaint that, um, that could ever be viewed as like terribly avant-garde or shocking.
0: Right. Um, what I did love though is there's, there's some shots in this, um, episode. Um, you know, the whole series so far has been really well directed, I think, but, um, this episode was, uh, directed by, uh, Laure de Clement Tonnerre. So hopefully I did not butcher that, uh, French name, but, um, there is a shot in this scene where, um, you know, the, the, the fake uh, male genitalia and the fake female genitalia are sort of like bashing together in the foreground and Brenda and Mark are framed behind it. And the chant of the avant-garde theater is like, this is what a marriage is. This is what a marriage is. This is what a marriage is. And like rewatching this episode, having knowing the journey that Brenda goes on in this episode, I just thought that that framing was really, um, was really clever. There's another shot to, you know, we're in the office where Fred is being interviewed for his profile. Um, it ends right before we cut to credits. It ends with Phyllis just sort of idly tipping her fingers on the scales of, of like a little statue of, of Lady Justice or whatever. And I'm just like, it's almost too much, but it's not, it's not too much. It works for me. Um, did that, I don't know if you like saw that shot or if it, if it worked for you or not.
1: I didn't, I didn't see that particular shot, but um yeah, again, I think with, with all of this kind of stuff, like, I, I think that this episode really weaves its kind of thematic stuff together quite nicely and tightly, you know? Um, and I don't know. I feel like we really got a sense of, um, just the kind of mood of, of, of that time and of, um, you know, for that particular kind of group of, you know, so- urban sophisticates. Um, you know, it all felt uh, very, uh, correct, I guess, even though I wasn't there then.
0: The, um, the, the, the part where Fred is getting interviewed, um, this is a real, I found the article. This is a real life article. The headline really was Phyllis Schlafly's lawyer husband against abortion and communism. Uh, and the photo really does have like her photo framed behind him over his shoulder, like the whole thing. And the whole thing is like very much about her um and you know and and we're meant to take this as like an emasculating moment for fred that he's being sort of uh overshone uh outshone by his wife but that she's trying to play it where you know because she's so smart and knows how he would react to that she is trying to play it like oh no it's not about me you know like sort of thing Mm -hmm. um and i just think The journey that Fred goes on this episode, while not sympathetic, is also interesting, very interesting for to watch. Well,
1: yeah, because, you know, again, he's not shown as some hectoring ogre, you know, who, you know, chains her to the stove or whatever. You know, he's proud of her and he, quote unquote, lets her do things you know, he clearly married an intellectual person or at least an, you know, educated person. Um, and yet you see the limits of it come out in a sort of petulance and, and then a kind of outright anger, um, all while claiming that he's doing it, you know, sort of in support of her. It just feels like a very realistic portrait of, you know, in its own, what is in its own way, a sort of abuse. Um, you know, it's not, he's not gaslighting her exactly, but he is making her think the parameters of her, of her life are a little wider than ultimately he wants them to be or will quote unquote allow them to be.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, what's, um, what's interesting to me. So the, the debate, the big moment of the debate, not to hop around too much, but the big moment of the debate, um, is when, uh, Fred calls her submissive, right? Um, and, that is taken actually from a 1978 Good Morning uh, America interview that you can watch. You can go on YouTube and watch right now if you want to. Um, if you're inclined to watch footage of the Lee on Good Morning America. But he said, he said that. And her reaction isn't quite as sort of, Kate plays it plays a little bigger than, than the real, like, Phyllis actually sort of played it. But, um, but it's word for word. Um, and this idea that's also, uh, covered in that interview is, is, uh, you know, he's like, well, she has her thing, but she never really tries to get, comp- she's never really tries to get into like my thing, which is law. And Phyllis says the same thing. She's like, we just don't really like compete on that level. Like, that's just not something that we compete on. So understanding that that is Fred's psychology that like, as long as he has his law career, he has this thing that Phyllis doesn't have. Her taking the LSAT and want, and you know, and, and wanting to go to law school and him knowing that it's not just sort of like idle, whatever that she did that. Um, it under, not understand, but it, it helps explain why he would sort of humiliate her in that way. Um, in the debate, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's that's an interesting scene because I didn't necessarily read it as deliberate humiliation, um, in retaliation for something. I read it as really the, the unpalatable truth of their side of things having to be said out loud and them realizing both of them how actually fucked up it is, you know? Um, and they obviously don't, self-assess enough to not continue to advocate for those things but in the context of being on a television show you know across sitting across from this like much more progressive young you know attractive couple and phyllis could be being completely embarrassed about making up a, a legal case um and then saying oh right at root i guess we're saying that she's submissive to her husband or to me i guess that's what this is about um and it sh- and they're kind of like surprised about it um i think indicated some you know an interesting thing about what this show is arguing particularly about phyllis Schlafly, is that it's not entirely clear where her belief stops and where her ambition carries mm-hmm. it forward you know mm-hmm. yeah. um, i don't want to conflate a woman's ambition with with something bad. It's not. It's just, um, you know, I think this show is just still kind of trying to figure out how intense her motivation was ideologically and how intense it was just in terms of, I want to like lead something and be, do something significant.
0: Yeah, and I I think that that's the ongoing the ongoing question, like how much does Phils believe any of this, and in what way is she grasping for power or significance, um, or the spotlight in some way. Um, And you see
1: it like with with um, forgive me, I forget her name, but uh, or their names rather, but the the brief scene with Melanie Linsky's character and Sarah Paulson's character, where Linsky comes in with a megaphone and is like abort the era or whatever, and Paulson's like, oh, I don't know if that's really where we want to go, um. I think that sometimes the extremity of what these, you know, what people are actually fighting for almost escape, you know, they can kind of sub- sublimate it and, and, and put it into their subconscious. And then when they're confronted with the actual verbiage, which with, with the actual implications of, you know, this thing, even they are a little startled by its intensity and, and what it's actually saying, you know, what, what its actual intent is.
0: Yeah, we've seen those moments of discomfort before too, when like Phyllis is, is forced, you know, like forced to acknowledge the, the various compromises she's making. Um, and I don't think she gets a pass on those compromises, um, ideological compromises, but I think it's worth considering that she didn't do it, you know, gleefully, maybe, you know, potentially. Um, I feel like uh, this is a good spot to just drop in on our conversation with John Slattery about Fred Schlafly and sort of uh, his take on, you know, what made their relationship work and what didn't.
2: It's obviously kind of a peripheral um, part of the story, Fred, Fred Schlafly. So, um, I, you know, I just thought it was a great story that I wanted to be involved in. I, and I was pleased at the way that, um, everyone sort of prized every relationship uh, in the story, you know, the, 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 I mean, I knew it certainly wasn't a story about Fred Schlafly, but I didn't, I never felt in any way shortchanged, um, you know, about time and detail and, and consideration and um, support and all that. So it was, it was really, I had a great time doing it.
0: I was just watching, um, you know, before I called you, I was just watching that uh, good morning in America interview from 78 that Fred and Phyllis gave, uh, part yeah. of which was lifted and put into this episode, um, uh. that part where he talks about her being uh, submissive Mm-mm. Um I'm curious what it's like for you as a performer to have, you know, if you watch that video and what it's like for you as a performer to have video that you can refer to to see how this man said those things uh, mm-hmm. on air when he did, you know.
2: You know, I know you you, know, you hear stories about people playing actual people and it's daunting and you don't want it to be an impersonation. And, but there really isn't that much video or, or archival footage of Fred Schlafly. Um, so it was really helpful actually. A couple of times, um, I, you know, a a couple of different moments that I talked to the, the, um, I can't remember her name who wrote, wrote the the daughter of the silent, uh, darling, the silent, um, majority, which was one of the texts that I was given. And she knew Fred and interviewed Phyllis a bunch of times and told me what it was like to, to, to encounter Fred and, and, and spend time with him. And, and, um, that and and, and then watching the little bits of footage that I was um, given were really helpful Um, because, because they sort of Davi and her writers had to cook up kind of a backstage narrative that arrived on stage in that moment with her wanting to go to law school and her um, kind of fighting Fred and, and his desire to have you know his, his traditional family structure uh, uh, not be upset by by Phyllis's uh, agenda, and so it was really helpful to kind of I don't know guess maybe or just try to try to reverse engineer how he arrived at that moment and why he chose to say that um, in that particular way. And, you know, and, and then when we did it, like you said, they lifted it and put it into the Tom Snyder interview. So it was, it was a different context. There was, we were facing off against the other couple and it was just like where to look and when and how to sort of best express the knowledge of, of, of what Fred was saying and when, Versus, you know, what Phyllis was doing in the moment. And it was a, that that particular interview was a different kind of thing where they just kind of ran roughshod over the whole thing. Like, in, in, in you know, uh, Brenda and um, I forget her husband's name. Oh, Mark. Mark. You know, I, I think I don't know whether it was their debating technique or whatever. But once, you know, Tom asked the first question of Fred and Phyllis, they just kind of blasted through a bunch of facts so so it was i guess the answer is it was really helpful in kind of choreographing where and how fred said what he said
0: yeah it's 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 interesting to me to watch that interview that good morning america interview and and try <clears throat> to understand this relationship better try to understand their connection he talks about sort of The way that he met her was, uh, you know, he read an article, thought it was written by a man and wanted to meet that man. And it turned out to be Phyllis. So it's a, you know, an intellectual connection as much as anything else. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, how did that inform the way you and and Kate crafted this relationship on screen?
2: That scene was in the show um, for a while. And then got cut for time as were a few other scenes, you know, when I first met Kate and Davi well, Davi, I'd known, but when I, we first got together, um, to rehearse, it was, um, it was, it, it was clear that all the material that was uh, at our disposal was to be considered, um, in play. Um, so there was what was written, but it was never suggested that something else couldn't be added, or or this point needed to be made clearer. Or so so the the, the relationship. Um, I found it interesting that given the public platforms of all these people, that the backstage repercussions, or the personal repercussions of all these relationships, um, and probably selfishly because that's where Fred Fred's scenes kind of take place being that she's the public figure in the relationship. And I just was interested in preserving and highlighting the, the personal repercussions for, for particularly Phyllis, but all of these women and, and the, the repercussions to their agendas, their egos, their, the time spent, striving to get the position, positioning that they deserved, but that they had to struggle for. Um, so, and all of that, as I said before, was thoroughly considered. So, really all you can ask for is willing partners and, and an ability to sort of pipe in at any time and, and, uh, and arrive at a place through rehearsal where you feel confident that this is the best version of the scene to show the relationship that you're trying to show. And I really felt that was, uh, that was all, that the, the time was well spent.
0: Was there ever a, you know, was there a moment, a scene, a conversation you had with Kate or with Davi that really gave you, you felt like was an aha, uh, eureka, I understand this man or I understand this relationship and I can, I know how to attack this? I mean,
2: it, it really did grow. I mean, the, the, the Kate and, and, and my knowledge of each other and how we worked and how, open and willing, you know, it takes a little while for, for, to get used to working with someone and their rhythms. And, and so while we were comfortable right away, I feel like um, speaking for myself anyway, it takes a little while to go, all right, if I do this, that's something that someone's going to get without me having to explain it beforehand. I'm just going to wait till they turn the camera on. I'm going to try this and see how that goes. And then, you know, you cut and then you go back and go, all right, that worked. Let's try that again, but let's, let's not take so much time doing this or that. So it was a constant series of adjustments, um, to get and make clear each little moment. Cause I I feel like with Fred and Phyllis, that's what they were. There were little moments of back and forth, give and take as far as, and it was, a ne- it was a lot of negotiating, um, And a lot of times Fred thought he was going to come out on top of that negotiation and didn't. Um, (laughs) And, and so, you know, you sort of have to show the, 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 the attack, the execution, and then the um, aftermath of, of a moment or or, or of of an argument or of a, a negotiation or of a debate that they would have an intellectual debate. They were on the same side of a lot of these issues, but, Phyllis was clearly suited for the public side of this relationship. And Fred would, would have to have been a fool not to recognize that. And he was not a public person and he wasn't very comfortable on camera as, as, as referenced by those bits of footage in those, in those, um, in those interviews. So I don't, I don't think they were, they were pitted against each other in that so much. I think there was a power struggle in the, in the, in the, family. And and certainly later on in the show where she decides to go to law school and, and that's his one, as one of their children said, that was his one place where he felt like, this is my arena. You can have politics and you can have the organi- organizing, but leave me this. And she chose to, to go to law school anyway, as, as we see. So, I mean, I guess... I guess it was just a series of adjustments. There wasn't really a mo- like a Eureka moment um in one scene where I thought, Oh, this is who Fred is. I-, I-, I guess we got closer and closer. And sometimes, you know, you never know like what the real, you know, behind closed doors in their bedroom, what Fred and Phyllis were actually like beyond the, a couple of anecdotes here and there. So you're, you know, you're making a lot of it up and, the more time you spend with each other as characters, as actors, the more the um, the subtle parts of the communication kind of open up, and and I feel like that happened all the time from the beginning to the end.
0: It's interesting. There's a you know there's a really uncomfortable scene um, early on, which I think is ref- reflective of this quote that Phyllis Schlafly gave. famously said something along the lines of. Um, there's no such thing as sexual assault in a marriage. You know, if you're in a marriage, mm-hmm. you are, you have agreed to this. And then you know this really uncomfortable scene where Fred is pressing, yeah. um, his affections on her and she clearly doesn't want it. Um, you know, and so that, that is one of those made up moments behind closed doors in the bedroom that informs this relationship. But, you know, mm-hmm. Fred is such an interesting, uh, form of, like, I don't know if abuser is even the word you want to use, but the sort of paternalistic, hmm. controlling, yet sometimes supportive in a way that's almost more insidious than if he were an outright, you know, abusive husband. Yeah. Um, what What's your take on, on that, on walking that line with this character?
2: That was a scene that was, um, yeah, I mean, it it, it was, it was an assault. So there's so many terms of, of sort of sexual assault thrown around, but it, it wasn't, and it was clear that she wasn't happy to be involved in it. And Fred was going to get what he wanted. And so it was very delicate. The discussions in between takes, how violent the, the actual action of the scene is, is, can be. Without it turning into a date rape scene, which mm-hmm. is then are you are you alleging that this is what took place? Um, you, you know what I mean? It's sort of like you were, were sort of making this scene up. So, how far can you go without being irresponsible? Um, and it was so so it was that kind of of a scene. I mean, it's it's it, not a pleasant scene to shoot. Obviously, I just remember being so present in and, and feeling like everyone was in that in the execution of that scene because it is again a a, a a nonverbal transaction that Fred and certainly Phyllis are aware that they want two different things and one of them is going to get what they want and so it's it was uh, it was a complicated it was a, it was a, a subtly complicated scene well not, not even that subtle because you know again it's this it's this sort of nonverbal negotiation and it's, it's difficult to execute that without it because there's so many ways it can um, get away from you it might, it might is, that, is that help? I mean, it, I'm just trying to remember the actual doing of it and it was really it was really uh, it was it was a bit of a high a bit of a high wire act that scene because, you know, you don't want it to fall into a, 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 a scene about a rape because that isn't the story you're trying to tell trying to tell the story of that that fred is wants what you know wants what he wants he wants her to stay home he wants her to be his traditional wife he wants to be uh maintain his his the 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 role he he feels like he plays in the family and she's going to she's doing what she wants so i guess it's a it's a scene about retribution um it's a scene about uh at least from fred's standpoint him Communicating to her that this is the way this show runs and and it was it 's really ugly that scene
0: yeah well it's what 's interesting to me the way you, you describe shooting it I, I speaking to a lot of the women who worked on the show they talked about what a rare circumstance it was for them to work on a show with so many women. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering if the converse is true as if it, for you, it was this a rare experience to work on a show, you know, as a, as a minority in the cast, as a male minority in the project. And
2: yeah, I mean, certainly I was, there were, there were not a lot of men around, um, on at least as acting partners. Um, I didn't, yeah, I grew up in a house with, four sisters. And I mean, I grew up with a lot of women. So it was never uncomfortable. I was, I just, you know, I mean, I knew what story I was getting involved in. I knew that this was a story about all these women and produced by and directed by predominantly women. Funny. I never, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is a difference, but I never felt there were, I never felt any power struggles. I felt like people were, exhausted as as you get this is a giant production there were something like 400 speaking parts people flying in from all over the place i'm just trying to think of a, con- a contrasting production where there were more men than women and what that was like and i don't know n- not surprisingly i i feel like all of those women produced the show incredibly well.
0: And I guess, yeah, on a a more personal level, having watched her work on Mad Men and then, and then do this, what is it like to see Davi go from, you know, producer writer uh, on Mad Men to, you know, runner of the show uh, in this instance?
2: Um, I directed a couple, I think at least one episode that Davi, was the was was the writer on you know g- given the pressures that must have been there um because they are if you're a showrunner everybody needs something from you every minute of every day not to mention having written it and having to make sure that the story is you know and it's always moving because you run out of time in one episode you have to tack something on to something else to get the story you know to make sure that a moment in episode one reflects, you know, or, or, lands in episode nine or, you know, the, the sort of overview of it is always in the back of your head. And she was always so generous with her time. And we have a really friendly rapport from having worked together before, but, um, she's just fantastic. And, 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 and remarkably, um, sunny given what I'm sure were, were pressures from all sides, but, Again, I think, I think it was so well, when I first was sent, I don't know, the first four of them, I was really impressed with how, um, given the scope of the story and the sweep of the, you know, the 10 years of, of the, you know, the subject of the story, how many of the details she was able to weave in, personal and professional details of all of these characters, you know, nothing seemed to suffer. And it's, it's, it's of a certain style. It's not a documentary. It's, it's, it's stylized. It's funny. It's witty. It's emotional. Um, and it's all, I I was remarkably, um, in a a remarkably economical way. Um, so, and, and, yet every time I'd bump into her, she, she, she was great. She was just (laughs) fun just fun to see and talk to. So, you know, um it was yeah I had a great I had a great time from I guess I said beginning to end.
0: You mentioned uh growing up with in a house full of sisters and you know this mm-hmm. decade of of history covers y- your personal teenage years. How mm-hmm. aware were you of of this fight of the women's liberation movement of everything that was going on on this front in the 70s?
2: Probably not that aware. Uh <laughs> yeah. I knew who Phyllis was. Um, I think I heard Stacy say she would confuse her with Anita Bryant. Um, and I, I probably would, was more aware of who Anita Bryant was just because she was a little, I don't know, more mainstream or commercial.
0: And I've been, I've been asking, uh, you know, your, your female co-stars this, but I'm curious your answer. Um, why, why do you think this fight for the ERA matters and does it still matter? You know, there's, there's, I guess there's a question, uh, you know, among some people, even liberal-minded people, who are saying, "Well, the ERA at this point is redundant," or mm-hmm. uh, you know, et cetera, there's all these arguments.
2: Yeah, I think it matters. I think it matters. It mattered then, certainly, and even though it's it's been overlapped by other. Uh, parts of the constitution or at least arguably where, you know, everybody legally should be treated equally. I I think it's, this, 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 there are inequities and, and, and there are in every part of society. And I think that anytime you can make it clear and add it to the, the framework of, of, of what this country is about as plainly as it should be. And um, so that there's no backslide because look where we are, you know, some things you take for granted and all of a sudden Change is is afoot, and and the different leadership, different administrations, and all of a sudden things that you know as a, you you take for granted aren't there anymore. Uh, so yeah, I think it's important. I mean, uh, I don't know. I I thought it I thought it had passed. I think like like other <laughs> <Me> people, <too. laughs> like oh yeah, and now it seems like a no brainer. But no, I think it's I, I do think it's important. Yeah.
0: On, um, on that Good Morning America, uh, interview, um, Fred Schlafly was asked if he was a feminist and he said no. Um, Uh, but I'm wondering, you know, what you think about, about that, about his, you know, there are certainly men in this world who wouldn't have let their wives do what Phyllis Schlafly did,
2: uh, at that time. I think that, that Fred was a feminist. I mean, I think, I think Fred, you know, Phyllis, are you going to allow Phyllis to, to do what she does? Or are you, you married this woman? I mean, like you said, you know, you walked into this bank thinking that a guy wrote that article and, and he encountered Phyllis and was, um, enamored of, of, of her for a lot of reasons, her intellect probably being the first reason. And so how do you stop a woman like Phyllis from being who she is? I think he recognized who she was and and they saw eye to eye on a lot of the issues so I think his his reticence to admit that he was a feminist had to do with the traditional role in Alton, Illinois, and his practice and 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 the nature of 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 a conservative lifestyle in the Midwest at that time um so I think it was mostly about appearances but i I would say Yeah, I would say that Fred was a feminist because, I mean, I think, well, at least in the case of Phyllis, I mean, I'm not sure he believed that women were men's equals, but I'm pretty certain that he thought Phyllis was at least his equal.
0: And that's such an interesting thing. It feels like that was almost Phyllis' Phyllis' perspective, too. She's like, you know, no, women should not be ambitious outside the home, except for me because I'm yeah. special and I, I should be allowed to do this. But women in yeah. general, that's not their place. And I think that's a fascinating right. contradiction within her, you know. Um, yeah. the There's a, I'm sure you're aware of this, that there is a Fred Schlafly Award um, from the Eagle Forum uh, about what it means to be a supportive husband.
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wonder who else has won that award. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'd be very
0: curious to know. (laughs) So we should talk about, uh, you know, this struggle that Brenda is going through in this episode. Um, and I just want to be completely forthright and say that, um, you know, I spent some time trying to, you know, I used to try to like, you know, look at what is real and what is invention in a show like this. And, and there's so much meticulous real detail in this episode, uh, in terms of timelines and headlines and all that sort of stuff. Um, and what is true about, um, Mark and Brenda is that they did divorce in the, they, they did have a child together, Alexis. They did divorce, uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, depending on who you ask. Um, and what is also true about Brenda is that, um, you know, she, she's worked a lot recently in her law career on, um, issues surrounding same-sex marriage. Um, she attended the 2013 Supreme Court hearings in the DOMA and Prop 8 cases, but I could not find any confirmation that, you know, she was either a lesbian or a bisexual. I, I, I can't find it and, and it might be out there, but I haven't been able to find it. So I don't know how much of this, um, I know a lot of the personal details of, um, People's lives in the show are someone invented. I don't know how invented this is, um, but you know we need to talk about uh, you know a main through line of this episode is that Brenda meets this photographer Jules, played by uh, Roberta Colindrez, who Richard recognized from the musical Fun Home, and I recognized from the TV show Vida, um, and she's great. She's she brings this really great energy um, into into the room here, um, but they have this affair and. Uh, Brenda is very. I think. I think Brenda's con Brenda's conflict over it, and then Mark's conflict over it, and how it's not what you expect, but still, you know, tough to watch. Um, I think is, you know, a really interesting story to watch play out.
1: Well, right, because it's again, you know, it's a nice parallel to the stuff with the Schlaffleys, which is. Yes, the parameters of your life are very big and we are thinking in, you know, very progressive terms. And, you know, of course, everything we have an equal partnership, all this, all this. But then actually, in tr- truth of, at least in this version of, of, of this relationship, um, not everything is okay. And there are some kind of stuffier, sort of more traditional things guarding it uh, guiding it or influencing it you know i think that the crucial thing where he's like if it had been another with with another man that would have been a much bigger thing and it's like but why you know um and then he kind of belittles the experience by saying it's like a rite of passage for any women's liver not that it might actually be have or might that have not that it might actually have been like an actual expression of self you know um and um you know so i think that I don't think that this this episode is coming down on heterosexual marriage as an inherently faulty you know um arrangement. I'm coming down on it that way, but um <laughs> but I think what they're what what they're really nicely showing and, and and insightfully showing um is is how pervasive um patriarchy in its many forms can could be you know. Um that a woman as educated and as free thinking and all that as Brenda um could have denied a part of herself for so long and you know so thoroughly that it so surprised her, um is is a really, you know, kind of shattering sort of idea. And and and, and also, you know, we have all the stuff with Phyllis's son, um, who is clearly reaching out to a desired life in his own way, a much more furtive and arguably dangerous way. Um, and yeah, it just, you know, there's a lot of loneliness in this episode. And, and I think, I think it's, um, uh, it's important to see that in addition to all the sort of, you know, rallying and unity.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely want to get to, to John Schlafly. Um I think that, uh, you know, this character and this depiction is, um, it's really, it's, it, you know, you would ask me a couple episodes ago, like, I, I know, you were like, I know that John Schlafly is gay man. I don't know whether or not the episode, the season's going to deal with it. And I, I promised you that it would. And it will continue to. And I think that that is a really, um, important and interesting internal contradiction in Phyllis Schlafly to pursue. But I, I wanted to really quickly, uh, get into this, like, men's liberation, uh, movement that, that, uh, Mark was a part of, a vanguard of, I guess. Um, so I just want to like touch on a few things that I found that I thought were so interesting. Uh, first, there's this article from 1972 called Teen Talk. It's basically like an advice column um, where the, this woman wrote, write in, wrote in or this girl wrote in, I guess. Uh, I want to go to law school, then devote all my efforts to the women's liberation movement. However, I also want to marry. My question is one I've never seen answered. How do men feel about wives who are involved in the women's lib? And this person, um, this columnist responded like, I- a great response about how, like, Betty Friedan's husband was not supportive. She says, um, then she says, Mark Fausto, husband of lawyer Brenda Feigen Fausto of the National Women's Political Caucus, said, quote, Too many men want their wives to make them feel superior, but my life does not depend on my subordinating Brenda. I take great, great pride in her accomplishments. Uh, and the column also quotes, uh, Martin Abzug, who's Belle Abzug's husband, who will also meet. Um, this, this parade through the husbands of the women's liberation movement or the, or the partners, uh, is, is really interesting to me is, you know, this is a show about women and I don't want me to center it on the men, but to me, they show up in this, like, you know, for an episode in the same way that like, I feel like sometimes the wives on Mad Men did, you know what I mean? It's like a nice little flip where they'll just like show up and you'll, and it'll be, they'll be played by an actor that you really like, and then they'll just go away. Um, I think of like, uh, Trudy on Mad Men or something like that. So, um, I just think that's interesting. And so, so Mark wrote this book, The Male Machine. Um, and there's this really interesting article over on Vice, uh, called The Men's Liberation Movement, Time Forgot. Uh, is from last year, March 2019. Um, and the subhead is, nowadays, the men's right movement runs the gamut from incels to red pillars. By the 1970s, men's libbers look something like feminists? Question mark. Uh, and it's a great sort of examination of this. Cause if you, if you say men's movement or men's liberation movement, I like, I I shudder and I think of that Parks and Recreation quotes when she's just like, "Men's rights don't exist, like it's garbage or like whatever." So, um, this idea that this was an earnest and uh, well considered sort of movement at the time, uh, the mail machine. I was reading a little bit of it, and it is interesting because it is, it is extremely progressive and also in obviously into twenty twenty perspective feels regressive, um, as well, because there are just limitations onto what, uh, Mark could conceive of for equality. You know what I mean? It's so, it's so equal in his mind, but then he says stuff. He's, he's got this quote where he goes, um, he, being like the male machine, all men, he has armor plating, which is virtually impregnable. His circuits are never scrambled or overrun by irrelevant personal signals. He dominates and outperforms his fellows, although with excessive flashing of lights or clashing of gears. His relationship with other male machines is one of respect, but not intimacy. It is difficult for him to connect his internal circuits to those of others. In fact, His internal secretary is something of a mystery to him and is maintained primarily by humans of the opposite sex. So this idea that, like, women have to, like, allow, uh, help men access their emotionality and stuff like that. And it's like, is that true? Can be. But it's very, it's a very limiting uh, perspective, uh, obviously.
1: Well, right. I mean, it shows how there can be gender essentialism even on the progressive side of things, you know. right this inherent, uh, this, this uh, suggestion or this belief that there is something inherently male about anybody or inherently female about somebody, um, you know, is, is something that got baked in, I think, to this movement that has been really hard now, um, to, to, to take out. Um, when, when you start to widen the tent again to trans people, particularly, mm-hmm. um, you see what's happening with a lot of British feminists who, um, have become, uh, I mean, turfs really. And, uh, and, and it's, you know, so I, I think it's, I, I, I wish that, um, uh, you know, I wish that, again, the show had time to go into all of this, but um, I appreciate your research at least, um, even if uh, we don't get it on the show. <laughs>
0: um, so let's talk about John, John Schlafly. Uh, the actor here is Ben Rosenfield, who I know best from uh, his work on Boardwalk Empire. Same. Um, but, uh, he's, he's a tremendous actor. I've, I've, I've always loved, um, he's just like a, a very subtle actor. And the, there are moments throughout, you know, and like, um, Fred attacks John a bit at the dinner table and Phyllis, like, sort of jumps to defend him or she is sort of nudging him to maybe study for the LSATs or something like that. Um, but of course, like, the big scene is this final scene between them at the piano. Um, where, as you say, she gives him this disgusting speech, but then they both like tearfully play the piano. It's so it's such a spectrum of emotion uh to go through in, in a in a relatively short scene. Um, how did all of that work for you?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really well done scene, you know, um, I think that we have a lot happening in this episode. That's the schlof the schlofli boys having these kind of expectations put on them. You know, go to law school, go into business, maybe go to medical school. You know, all these th- things that they are supposed to do to assume their rightly male place in the world as men of you know power and privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, this was not a household that was you know this wasn't a fundamentalist household. They were allowed to to pursue other things it seems because we have John playing you know the piano beautifully um, as an expression of creativity and you know that is oftentimes associated with effeminacy or being gay or whatever um, and uh, so it's just, I think it's an interesting example of someone finding the little egresses in the, 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 the confines of their life you know um, that he could be as gay as filled the house and then no more, you know? Um, I think that that's a really interesting portraiture. I think that the, the, as creepy as it is, the the monologue that Kate Blanchett delivers about the quitting smoking um, is a really good example of something that seems that was probably intended as loving. Um, and right. yet, and yet what it's actually saying is, you know, tantamount to uh, torture yourself. Uh, or else, you know, you're going to harm yourself. And I think that that's, um, uh, well, it's obviously a, a you know, a dichotomy that it's not solvable. You know, harm yourself so you don't cause yourself any harm. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think I think it accomplishes a lot in one scene, which is, um, you know, if efficiency is the name of the game and it, something that's covering a lot of lives and a lot of time, um, I think this is well done.
0: Yeah, the... Um... There is, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that these are, these are creatures, uh, motivated by self-interest. Um, and I think, you, you know, there's this question of like, you need to be more careful is something she says to him and is something that the guy who, you know, brings back his wallet and basically extorts some money from Villas, uh, says as well. You should be more careful. Um, and, but because of the way that that sort of extortion scene plays out, it doesn't feel like Phyllis is saying, like, you need to be more careful for your own safety. Because it feels to me like she's – I mean, I'm sure that's that's on her mind. But it's also like, you need to be more careful because of my reputation also, or our reputation. Do you oh, know? yeah. No, the careful yeah.
1: there is not, I don't think um, – Really about his safety or anything? I think yeah, it's about you have to be more discreet, really. Right. You know, um, or 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 try to avoid it all told. You know, um, but discreet
0: for his sake or discreet for her sake. You know what I mean? And I think it's for the family's sake. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it also the way that she, you know, understands and from a you know with a with her nose held from a distance, accepts that he has had at least one dalliance with a man is felt in a way like this, this woman being like, well, you know, men have their needs. I just, just, you know, I, I wish he didn't have this need and, and that he would be more, you know, careful about it, but more discreet about it. Um, it's, it still links into, um, this gender dynamic that, um, is clearly toxic to all of them. Um, mm-hmm. and yet, you know, it's not seen that way.
0: Yeah, the, the culmination of the Fred and Phyllis fight in the hotel room after the debate, where she slaps herself. Um, yeah. you know, I, th- I think that is extremely interesting in terms of, um, you know, Fred Schlafly was, by some weird standard, uh, an oddly supportive husband for, you know, given their politics and their, and their, you know, points of view in the, in the world. And this, this point that Brenda makes that Phyllis isn't a housewife. She's a full-time lobbyist. Um, you know, one of many excellent points that Brenda scores in that debate. Um, so the fact that Phyllis has had to internalize that, you know, Fred's not going to be physically abusive to her. So she slaps herself is a really powerful, uh, Quick moment in the episode, I think. Um, and we should talk really quickly about the debate. So, uh, Bobby Cannavale is here, uh, Rose Burns, uh, partner, uh, playing Tom Snyder and, uh, doing a, a, fi- a, fine job. And, um, I really love the pre-debate scene, the backstage moment when the Fred and Mark and Brenda are all bonding about Harvard and Phyllis is like the odd man out of this of this foursome. And I, I really liked, I liked this idea that of course, like Phyllis and Fred would try to like make polite small talk or like, do you know so-and-so? I know so-and-so with, with the, the Fagin Faustos, um, that of course that's something that they would do. And, uh, and, and how much that backfires on Phyllis, you know?
1: Yeah. I think, you know, just seeing that, um, the, the sort of, the social rules that they have carefully, the schlaflies have carefully lived by of decorum and, and this kind of thing. Um, it doesn't, isn't going to work in, in, in the same way in, in that new era and with a, a sort of different thinking kind of people. Um, you know, and I think that clearly she goes on stage thinking that this is going to be go one way. And then Brenda just does not relent on trying to get some facts you know some actual uh cases cited or whatever and it's just it it seems like it's she's sloughly is so helpless in the face of someone who does not kind of you know dem- demure to um convention or social tact or whatever and i think that um it will be interesting to see her kind of harden against that and figure out how to conquer um that sort of innate like politeness i guess um because what she's doing is very impolite if she's just doing it in a kind of shrouded way you know
0: absolutely um the the debate is is fascinating the brenda and mark sort of like railroad the schlaflys uh or i should just say like brenda does it like because mark just sits there um mark gives the like a textbook perfect uh Answer to who wears the pants in the family. I just want to like applaud this fictional version of Mark for his great answer for that. Um, and we see that Gloria is watching the debate, having slept with, um, this uh, new guy that she's met, and this is this is a betrayal because, uh, you know, her partner Frank, uh, at least this version of him in an earlier scene, had said like, I wouldn't be okay with that. So like, you know. Yes, Gloria was like a freewheeling, like, I'm, I'm, you know, sex in the single girl sort of like, um, attitude. But, you know, if she has some kind of covenant with Frank, uh, at least this version of Frank, she has betrayed it by having, um, this dalliance with this person. So, um, and, you know, I think that shines through in her discomfort at being like asked to be a godparent to Brenda and Mark's baby because she's just sort of like, you know, that I think feels like more, um, co- of a like conventional couple ask than Gloria is comfortable with. I, w- I was reading this, in, uh, there's a Vanity Fair profile actually of Gloria Steinem that was, uh, written in, I want to say 2012, thereabouts, um, where they interviewed the, uh, the guy, the real life guy who, um, who Jake Lacy is playing. And um he talks about in that in that article he talked about how um Gloria didn't want kids because she had to take care of her mom, like her mom was very sick and had to take care of her mom. And so he's just like, yeah, she didn't want kids and she didn't want to get married. <laughs> she just wanted to like live her life and how how challenging that was for even other members of the of the uh feminist movement to understand
1: yeah i think it's a really interesting um glorious gloria plays a really interesting role in this episode um where her she seems a little bit aloof a little bit kind of you know not sure of her place in the movement and and i think maybe like getting a little sick of not looking out for herself i guess um and um you know because i'm sure that heavy you know sits the crown that you know, where you have to kind of be this representative of this big thing all the time um and then perhaps seeing that brenda could not only kind of do that interview but also sexually explore also be pregnant at the same time and all that you know um n- not that those are things necessarily that steinem wanted but like um the the sort of more holistic experience of being alive. I think that you see that kind of become appealing to Steinem, um, at the end of the episode where she's like, I'm going to retreat and do a little, I want to do my own writing, you know? Um, and I think it's, it's a subtle kind of shift I think in the character, but I think Byrne really plays it well.
0: Yeah, and this ongoing, like, I want to write my book. I want to write my book. Oh, oh my God, this guy, Mark is writing a book before me. So I was like, and I do want to say a Mark's book, the mail machine. um, Almost as big as his own name on the front cover is Gloria Steinem's cover. <laughs> it's like forward by Gloria Steinem and like, uh, you know, so she's doing him a huge favor by writing this intro for his book. Um, but uh, lastly, I think lastly, though, uh, though I don't want to close out this episode without noting that at one point Kate Blanchett says, thank you, daddy. To, yeah, horrifying. <laughs> flattery. <laughs> like, I mean, and in that way, you know, I'm like, I'm not on Fred Schlafly's side really at all, but like, the fact that she's like on her knees rubbing his legs and says, thank you, daddy. Uh, you know, if that's to be, uh, believed as true, then him later saying she's submissive, I was like, well, I mean, I don't think she actually is, but she's playing the part to get what she needs. So, um, anyway, um, let's talk about Free to Be You and Me really quickly. So this is, this came out in, uh, 1974. Four, I believe um, did you have this album in your house growing up
1: I did not no Mm-mm.
0: okay we did my sister was born in 77 so I think like closer to when this came out um, and so it was like more of my sister's thing and then it was my thing but like I have all the songs from Free to Be You and Me memorized. Um, it was just like a huge thing. And Marlo Thomas, you know, we just talked about Mary Tyler Moore, uh, last week. Marlo Thomas was sort of, I, she has been not as well remembered as Mary Tyler Moore. Um, but her series, I think it was called The Single Girl or That Girl. Yeah, That Girl. Um, and it was just sort of like another one of those, like, you know, uh, s- single girl in the sixties sort of, um you know take it on the world um, sort of thing and Milo Thomas did along with Gloria Steinem help found the Miss Foundation for Women so that um that album uh you know which was Enormously popular. The found the proceeds did go to the Miss Foundation, which I think is, um, is interesting. And so, you know, uh, like, you don't really need to know that much more about Free to Me, You and Me, other than the, like, main song, which plays over the end, which is, of course, um, crushingly ironic, um, as Brenda is sort of sitting there feeling like she's not free to be the person that she actually is, um, accepting for at least a time in her life this marriage, this motherhood, um, this role, you know,
1: um, yeah, sorry, I don't <clears throat> uh, I think I have to go because of this stupid fucking delivery I, I I really, really liked that closing shot. I think it really, um, yeah, you know, it, it, I like that it made these four people just four people who were sitting on a couch, you know, having a glass of wine, mm-hmm. watching something that a lot of other people were watching, like it 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 grounded it a bit while also speaking to the mood at the time. I mean, you know, that, that could, that, that, that special could air in 1974, which was really about trying to level gender differences and all that. Um, there was, there was stuff happening beyond just these people, you know, they were obviously huge parts of it, but um, I think it just really ni- nicely set the time and place um, while acting as a very bitterly ironic button for this particular episode. Which saw at least two characters realize that, in fact, no, they are not free necessarily to be themselves, Um, at least if they want to uh, continue playing by the rules of the various social contracts that they signed, either willingly or not.
0: Excellent. Um, so that is episode five, Phyllis and Fred and Brenda and Mark. Um, we'll be back next week with an episode titled, uh, Jill and we'll be chatting with, uh, the great Elizabeth Banks about that. Um, Jill is my favorite episode, I think. Ooh, I haven't seen it yet. I'm excited. Of the whole season, um, because Jill Ruckles House is, um, you know, sort of the token Republican and I think it's a really interesting look at, the Republican Party at the time and what it was going through. Also, I won't spoil for you who the like husband guest star is next week, but it's pretty, it's pretty exciting. So anyway, um, until then, Richard, uh, where can folks find you?
1: Well, I've got to update all my Adam Brody fanfic, uh, (laughs) now that he and Blanchett are scene partners. Um, so I'll be busy doing that from the safety and of my home, uh, tweeting at Rylas and writing it on VF.com. Joanna, what will you be doing until next week?
0: I will be seeking out, that tremendous, this is what a marriage is, uh, avant-garde, uh, puppetry of the penis performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just, you know, uh, I think
1: it was a kind of mid-career Neil Simon, right?
0: <laughs> and memorizing it. Uh, otherwise you can find me on vanityfair.com or on Twitter. I wrote this. Richard and I will be talking about, uh, something else from the seventies this week, 1975's, uh, film uh, network, uh, over on uh, Little Gold Men. So it is a, it is a mid-seventies week for us podcasting wise, and we'll be back for the Westworld finale and then Jill uh, next week. See you then.